Well, after you just sat down, would you please stand with me for the reading of more of God's Word. God has delivered the Israelites from oppression in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, seen God single-handedly defeat the Egyptian army, all of those chariots and warriors, Israel unarmed, wandering in the desert. And then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord of uh, the name of uh, your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that the days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord the, your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Lord, we are so far removed from the giving of this law. It has almost become um, memorialized as an artifact in many places in our culture. Something to be fought over, whether or not it can be displayed here or there. And far too little thought about the God who gave it or actually following it. Lord, I thank you that when your people received this law, they rejoiced. And that should remind us that this is good news and points to your son, Jesus. And so by the power of your spirit, I pray you would open up this word to us, that you would take it off the shelf of our mental bookshelf, that you would dust it off for us and cause it to give life again for us who maybe have neglected it for far too long. After all, this is why we come before you and submit ourselves to your word each week. Amen. You may be seated. The Ten Commandments. Iconic, ancient, controversial, antiquated, simplistic. Moses. Charlton Heston. 
These are just some of the common words that come up when many people think of the Ten Commandments. And last Sunday, we began a ser- uh, our, our fall sermon series rooted in the Ten Commandments, and we learned some other words that the Bible describes about the Ten Commandments, such as gracious, life-affirming, creative, genre-bending, God's Word to us, God's Word for us. As we work through the Ten Commandments, and yes, we're going to take ten weeks to do this, so just sit tight. As we work through the Ten Commandments, I want to kind of just let you know what I hope to offer us as a church. Each week, I want to show you why God gave this commandment or these commandments to Israel. It's one of my goals. I want to show you why these Ten Commandments, or rather how these Ten Commandments are relevant to us today. And I want to show you how these commandments are life-giving gifts from God. In other words, how each one of these points us toward Jesus, the life-giver. Last week, we explored the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And this week, we're going to focus on the second commandment, or as some have come to see it, the second part of the first commandment, and it reads like this, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now, why would God give this law to Israel? What on earth does it mean? Does this mean that we can't make representations of nature in any form? It kind of sounds like that. And if that is the case, then every week we cause our children to sin when we have them do little craft projects that depict animals or when they color pictures that uh, depict scenes in nature. Uh, Every time um, we have a slide background that is a depiction of nature, are we singing words of praise while breaking the second commandment? Our bulletin has leaves on it uh, depicting a scene from nature. Even our church logo has leaves on it, actually. So I'm I'm thinking that if if that's what this means, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, These may seem ridiculous, but over the centuries, different movements have greatly restricted the visual arts out of fear of breaking this commandment. In fact, one Jewish author, a commentator, uh, uh, writes that uh, many, many Jewish artists are famous for literature and music and even mathematics and economics and excel in these areas, but visual arts are strikingly lacking because of centuries of maybe misreading of this uh, commandment. People have feared the visual arts, especially religious art, depi- depicting Jesus or characters from the Bible or great men and women from Christian history. Uh, it's really interesting. We went to Greek Fest. Sophia, or Stella and I had a little date last night, and uh, we went to Greek Fest, and I took her into St. Sophia's, and, uh, and she was just blown away by the iconography and the dome, and we sat, and I taught her a little bit about uh, uh, stylized art and things like that, but it was just fascinating to see, you know, these, this place, this movement in the Christian church that um, isn't afraid of pictures, doesn't worship them, but sees them as windows to worship Jesus. But mere depiction of nature, people, and even Jesus is not what this commandment is prohibiting. And we know this for two reasons. Like, I'm not just making it up. Uh, The first reason is that in other parts of this very book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, God himself will give instructions for building the tabernacle. And in those instructions, he talks about fine work of uh, metal work depicting uh, vines and uh, blossoms of flowers. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is to be adorned with 
beings from the heavens from the, with the cherubim, these mighty winged creatures. Uh, they're to be... Uh, uh, we're to remember that God is the creator of heaven and earth. He loves his creation. He knows it's beautiful, and he loves it when we enjoy it and steward it. The second way we know that this commandment is not an anti-art or anti-depicting nature uh, commandment is that the prohibition here is not depicting things from nature in order to worship them. It has nothing to do with just creating them uh, out of beauty. Which begs the question, why would God give this commandment to Israel in the first place? The fact of the matter is, is that by the time Yahweh rescues Israel from Egypt, they had been in captivity, in slavery there for roughly 400 years. 400 years in a polytheistic culture that worshipped a multitude of different gods and goddesses, each depicting a different aspect of nature. Not only that, but Egypt was a hub for trade and economy in the ancient world, so uh, people from Babylon and Canaan and Philistine, they, they all came to Egypt, and the Israelites would have had interactions with them, with their language, with their gods, with their religion, and all of these different uh, na nature gods and goddesses and idols. The Israelites were no doubt influenced by these religions. And before we go any further, I want to say a few things about idols in the ancient world. Idols could be made of wood or stone, uh, wood overlaid with metal, or simply precious metal uh, molded to in the form of a god or a goddess. Priests didn't believe that the idol, the thing on, uh, on a little stand or something, was a god in itself. But they did believe that the spirit of the god Baal or Marduk or uh, Tiamat or Ashtara, they, they could come and indwell these little uh, idols. We have extensive writings about this. I mean, I have pages and pages of documents that show in cuneiform uh, this ancient Mizpi incantation. And what would happen is uh, the priest would, would take a little idol and uh, it's just a block of wood or a piece of stone or a piece of metal. And that priest would spit because saliva, they believed, had life. And they would spit on the eyes and on the mouth and on the ears of the idol. And what they believed is that that spit would open up, if you said the right incantation, would open up those orifices and allow the spirit of Baal to come and indwell that idol. So, for example, if, uh, let's see, I've got little Stella's, uh, let's see, oh, she took, here's, here's Snowflake, Snowball. I don't remember, Stella, I think it's Snowball. Uh, this is a, a baby monk seal, right? And let's say that, uh, that uh, the, this baby monk seal represents the goddess um, seal lech. <laughs> In a good Hebrew, lech means melech, means king, so seal lech. And seal lech's cult and main temple is in Seattle. 3,000 years ago, if you live in Bellingham, you don't get to Seattle. Maybe 1% of us would actually get there because it's so far uh, away. We don't travel far from home in those days. So what would happen is, let's say, um, uh, our, our priestess here um, has the, makes this little idol of, of Selec and spits on the eyes and the ears and the flippers or something. And then um, it says the right words. And the spirit of Selec that's in Seattle come and also indwells here in Bellingham. And we set this up in maybe our, our home or in our little temple in the town square of Bellingham. Kind of interesting. Now, why would people do that? Why would people take a lifeless object, 
say some words, spit, and pretend that the spirit of a god or goddess would come in and dwell it. Uh, well, there's actually lots of reasons. I'm going to just say a few because I've only got a short time to preach. But uh, Douglas Stewart, uh, an Old Testament scholar, uh, lays these out nicely. I'm drawing largely from his work. Um, first of all, idolatry was normal. It was normal when the Israelites, uh, when Moses is giving this law from God, it was usual. It was how ancient people worshipped before revelation from God. For the Israelites, it was more of a question as to why not than why would you worship an idol. And for many periods in Israel's history, the people simply added Yahweh to their pantheon of other gods. It was kind of like an insurance policy, like, yeah, God uh, saved us from the, the Egyptians and shows up and, and helps us defeat our enemies. But, you know, when things are kind of like going good and smooth, what would it hurt just to have, you know, the God of the crops over there and the rain God and these other ones that uh, the Canaanites lean into? And we'll, we'll make sure that Yahweh is number one, but we'll kind of have these other ones as an insurance policy. Second, it was a power play. You see, the people believed that the ancient gods and their idols were stuck in creation just like we are. That these gods and goddesses didn't actually create anything, but they were um, created by other gods who are far distant, and then they just have control over the crops, over the sea, over the mountains, over the rain, over the sun and moon and stars. Each thing had its own deity. But... Even though these gods and goddesses were more powerful than humans, they had two main things that they couldn't do. They couldn't bathe themselves, I'm serious, and they couldn't eat for themselves. And so if you had an idol of Selek in your house, and let's say Selek is the goddess of the sea, how creative, and fishing, and you're a fisherman here in Bellingham, uh, and you've got a little Selek, and you're like, oh, I, I worship Selek, and I give you baths, and, uh, and you're just, you're making these sacrifices, but you're not getting any fish. I just may forget to feed you, Selek, because I need some fish, and I, I'm going to exert my power over this god or goddess by withholding offerings from you. And if that is the way that Selek actually eats, needs sustenance from you, then you have power over this idol. It doesn't take long, of course, to see that the advantage of all of this kind of, of thinking. You can coerce the deity into doing your bidding. Third, the, being a polytheist in an ancient form was easy, at least in, his, in theory. Uh, so long as you paid your dues, which means you make your sacrifices, which means you had a barbecue with really good meat that you eat 90% of and give 10% and you burn it up on the grill, and that's the offering for the god or the goddess. So basically, you get to have a barbecue and drink lots, and in some cults, do other things with your body. It was pretty easy. That's how you made the gods happy. In that system of religion, religion had zero to do with ethics so you could be a devout follower of selec by having barbecues and drinking lots and having relations with uh with people um but you didn't have to treat your neighbor well or treat your spouse well or your children well ethics and morals were completely separated from the religious world isn't that interesting it was an easy religion 
Serving idols was simply transactional. I do this for you, and you do this for me. I give you a sacrifice. I hope for good crops, or I hope for rain, or I hope for a good catch of fish. Now contrast that with what we know from Scripture about a relationship with God. A relationship with God. Let's just start there. The one true God, Yahweh, has revealed himself as creator of heaven and earth. He's not stuck in the creation like pantheism, right? In pantheism, God, we say, is everywhere, but he's in the stuff. He's in the, in the trees, he's in the grass, he's in the sky, he's in the mountains, but he's in creation, whereas Yahweh has revealed himself as the creator of these things. He is transcendent. That means he's outside, he's not controlled, he's not locked in the physical world like we are. He rules it, and yet, he is so loving and is so relational and wants to be with us so much that he interacts with this world. He chooses to be imminent. Transcendent is outside of the created order. That's one of the elements of God. And his imminence means that he comes near us and he talks to us and relates to us and intervenes in our world because he chooses to. And of course, when we get to Jesus, he incarnates, he becomes one of us. This is a God who passionately loves us and invites us to love him passionately. The gods of the ancient world are nothing like that. They really don't like people very much. And people really don't like them very much. So why wouldn't God want his people to make and worship idols? Might seem obvious, but I can think of two very good reasons. First, this commandment is a prohibition against worshiping Yahweh in the same way that people worshipped idols. There's a, a famous story, you've heard it before most likely, in Exodus chapter 32. Moses goes up to the mountain to receive this law, and I know it happens after, but this is kind of like, uh, the, this chapter 20 in Exodus is a bit like um, a flashback or a flash forward or a closed captioning. It, it's taken out of the narrative form, given us in law form, and then later on, the stories catch up with it. So in Exodus 32, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law. He says, Aaron, who's his brother, and the head of the priestly clan, Aaron, watch over the Israelites for me. I'm going to go up and, and talk with God. Um, I'll go up there and face him so you guys don't get zapped. Just don't touch the mountain. Be cool. I'll be back. Now, weeks go by, and the people begin to get antsy and like, hey, I don't think Moses is coming back. I bet you God zapped him or something crazy. We, we got to get our worship on, and we don't know how to do it. We're used to worshiping gods through idols and through these other avenues. And so Aaron says, fine, you guys are driving me crazy. Take all your jewelry off, throw it in the fire, and whether or not this just happens or, or, or they, they molded it, we don't really know, but a, a molten golden calf, a cow, comes out of this amalgam of precious metals. And what Aaron says next is fascinating. I don't know if you've paid attention to these words much before. Aaron doesn't say, Behold, the calf god who brought you out of Egypt. He says, Behold, your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is fascinating because most likely Aaron didn't invent a new God with that amalgam of precious metal. Instead, he made an image representing Yahweh 
that people could worship in the manner that the pagans worshipped. It was so that the people could comfort themselves, could feel like the God who rescued them was there, that they could see, and so that they could control him. If you can make a God in an image and have it in your hut and feed it or not feed it and all of these things, you feel like you can have control over it. So on the one hand, the second commandment keeps Israel from worshiping Yahweh as if he's just one of those other gods who could be controlled and had to be fed and had to be bathed. It keeps them from thinking they have power over him. After all, how can you truly love and respect someone that you aim to control all along? The second reason that God prohibits the worship of idols is because they're false. According to the scripture, the Bible, there's only one God. And if we put our hope in idols, we are putting our hope in nothing. Idols cannot help you. Idols cannot save you. Idols will not lead us to fullness of life. Idols can't save us from our sin. And most of the time, they are amoral anyway. They are without morals. They don't care about ethics. In most religion, religious systems of pantheism, uh, and polytheism, the gods are just as screwed up as the people. They're just more powerful. Remember that God gives the Ten Commandments to the people as an act of grace. He's sharing his heart with them, and he gives them a law that leads to life. And that's why he gives such a passionate warning in verses 5 and 6. When we read about God's jealousy, it's really a shame that it's translated like that into English because every time I see the word jealousy, I think of like a teenage love spat or, or these little notes like, do you, do you still like me? Yes or no? Or, you know, that, that's like the shallowest form of jealousy I can think of and yet that's kind of what comes up in our English word jealousy. But jealousy when referring to God is most often translated zeal or what we would call passion. The idea isn't that if we don't pay attention to God and we go after other idols, he's going to get his feelings hurt and feel jealous. The idea is that he is fiercely, fiercely loyal to us, and he desires fierce loyalty in return. When you and I seek idols, we find that our sin corrupts us, but not only us. It corrupts our families as well, and our communities and our societies. The effect of evil has consequences that may last for generations. In fact, it's been pointed out by numerous Bible scholars that to let the effects of idolatry only extend three or four generations, like it says in verse 5, is an extreme grace from God. If God didn't keep the effects of evil in check, there's no guarantee that you and I would even exist today. Uh, things could have gotten out of hand much sooner if God didn't keep them in check. On the other hand, God seeks to bless the faithful, and his blessing extends to thousands of generations. That's Bible talk for more than you can count. So you see why God would give this gracious commandment to the Israelites. They lived in a time and a place where they were truly tempted to worship idols made out of stone, made out of wood, made out of metal. In some places in the world today, that's also a real temptation. Maybe even in some communities in the Western world, although they would be the vast minority, 
But how is this possibly relevant for most of us here in this room? When's the last time you were tempted to bow down to a, a golden calf or to a wooden idol? It's relevant because, of course, idols don't have to be small statues that represent false gods. They can be any object or any objective that become false gods. An idol is basically anything that you place your faith in to bring you happiness, provision, identity, or significance. It is something we set out to use to achieve our goal, but in the end, that thing that we thought we were using to achieve our goal ends up becoming our master. And that's what happens every time we try and live our life without submission to God. Every time. And sometimes it takes a while. So you may be thinking, actually, I'm doing pretty well. Just wait. <laughs> Just wait. Because every time, that's what happens. It could be, of course, addiction to a, a, approval. If you're addicted to gaining the approval and affirmation of others, you're going to put the opinions of other people before the opinion of God. You're going to say and do whatever it takes to make people like you, and eventually you'll find that along the way, somewhere back there, you lost you somewhere, your soul, your identity. Idolatry can take the form of competition. You've been hurt or disappointed somewhere along the way, and whether you say it out loud or usually it's a subconscious thing, you've constructed your life in a way that you will win at life. You will never be taken advantage of again. Whether it's finding the best deals, whether it's winning every traffic battle at the four-way stop, I go first, or making sure that the Facebook world knows that you win at life because you have the best vacations and you got the best this and that and that. Idolatry can center around addictions to substances or be located on our sexuality. Idolatry, idolatry could be a fixation on a life that you want but you don't have yet. That spouse that you long for or a child that you don't have on a different financial situation or on a different marriage. The disappointment and the cost that you're willing to pay is the sacrifice you make to the God of unmet expectations. Idolatry can take countless forms. It can occur in children as well as adults. Basically, whatever we put above God, whether it's Legos or sports. <laughs> Sorry to mention Legos. Um, that doesn't have to be an idol. <laughs> Money, computer games, family, career, it can all be an idol. I'm not really here to tell you about all the different ways that we can have idolatry. Um, I kind of think you know, I know, and I really believe that that's the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of those areas in our life. I want to ask about what is the big deal? I mean, we've all got our stuff, right? And doesn't God love us anyway? I'm here to say, yes, he loves you fiercely. He loves you so much and respects you so much. Respects you so much. I want to say that again. 
that he oftentimes will not stand in your way. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when you make decisions, he oftentimes will not stand in your way. He will let us chase our idols until, we'll, until we are left a shadow of ourselves. And that is the danger of idolatry. In Romans 1, that Josh read earlier, Paul talks about how people began to worship the things of creation rather than the creator. And eventually they found themselves enslaved to those things of creation, and their behaviors became subhuman. And we see this all the time. We turn to drugs or alcohol to help us cope, and then we become enslaved, right? Or we start neglecting meeting together in worship so we can go find God in creation, or we could go make family experiences more often on Sundays. And we wonder after a while, like, this is really fun, and then I feel distant from God, and now I don't want to go to church anymore anyway. How did that happen? The real issue is that there is one depiction of God that is sanctioned by God himself, one idol that he allows to be made in his world. And that image or icon is the one you see every time you look at another person. It's the one you see every time you look in the mirror. You and every other human being on the face of the earth are made in God's image. You were made to till the earth in so many ways. You don't all have to be gardeners. But you were made to build and create with beauty. You were made to master creation in a way that reflects God's grace and his beauty and his love. You were made to be a vice regent, a sub-king of God on the earth his sub-creators, his rulers here on earth. And when we began to worship the creation rather than the creator, we become enslaved to the things that God created. Then we degrade ourselves to the point where we're addicted to pleasing our fleshly appetites. And in a very real way, we abdicate our responsibility as image bearers of God. be like i don't know like just think of anything like think of the president of the united states that's got to be an insanely difficult job what if the president just said you know i i really got into golfing i want to be at martha's vineyard more uh, i'm going to golf every day basically we would say you've just abdicated your post you're supposed to be like leading us and doing stuff but you're just golfing because it feels good because you want to do that would be like a, 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 a you know a couple of parents or something who you know, their role in life is to help nurture their children, to maybe help with homework and teach responsibility, but they get addicted to binge-watching TV all the time. I'm just making stuff up. I don't know anybody like this, but... And, and they just, you know, just become couch potatoes, and their kids come and go to school on their own. They make their own lunch. They don't... There's no structure. That's an abdication of responsibility. That, that's exactly what I'm talking about here that idolatry does to us. When we go after just pleasing our own appetites and we allow the creation to rule over us, the creation that we were created to kind of master over in a, in a benevolent way, we've abdicated our responsibility. We fail to be who we were made to be. Just take a moment and look at the person on your right or the left behind you. 
the person you are sitting next to is a glorious being endowed with incredible dignity, given incredible power and worth and responsibility. You are sitting next to, right now, you're sitting next to an agent of God. Even if you're sitting, kids, you are an agent of God. You are an agent of God. The person that you see in the mirror or in your last selfie is a glorious being endowed with incredible dignity, power, worth, and responsibility. You are an agent of God. And the Bible repeatedly warns us time and time again, multiple scriptures, that one of the costs of following idols that cannot see or cannot speak or cannot hear is that we will become like them, having eyes that don't see reality. It's not talking about you being blind. It's talking about you becoming blind to reality, deaf to reality, unable to speak words that bring life, having hearts that become calloused or hard like stone. And the scary thing is when we become blind and deaf to reality, we cannot hear the voice of God. We are lost without hope of rescue. We will literally follow our idols off the cliff into destruction. This is where the commandment is good news. Remember that line in, in verses 5 and 6 about God's jealousy, about his zeal. Well, he is so faithful that he simply won't give up. Instead of sitting in judgment, they're going after idols, I'm going to zap them. Instead of being like that, he turns his zeal towards salvation And in his zeal, in his covenant faithfulness, he becomes a human being and sends himself to rescue us. When Jesus ministered in first century Palestine, he frequently found the religious leaders to be arrogant and blind to who he was and to what he was saying. But to the humble, well, I encourage you this week to read Mark chapter 7 and chapter 8, for example. In chapter 7 of Mark, Jesus encounters a deaf man who also had trouble speaking. Jesus, the one who could heal with just a word, he did it so many other times in the Gospels, decides to heal this man in a unique way. Do you remember how he healed this man? Yep. Puts his fingers in his ears, spits on his hand, and touches the man's tongue. Ooh, gross! You could say, well, they didn't know about germs back then. Yeah, that's just weird. Why would Jesus do this? And then you remember that Ms. P incantation. I know you guys wrote this down on your notes. Uh, M-I-S, new word, P-I, incantation. Do you remember the incantation? How pagan priests would spit on the eyes and the mouth and the ears of idols so that the spirit of the gods would fill them. What if Jesus is saying, you have become like the idols you worship. You are lost, but I have come to rescue you. I've come to bring sight to your blind eyes and hearing to your deaf ears and to open your mouth so that you can again speak good words of life to other people. Jesus allows us to be free from the grip of idols and then he fills us with his spirit. He cures us of our idolatry, and he gives us life where we were on the road to certain death. And he can do it for you, and he can do it for me.
Jesus restores us to be the image bearers of God we were created to be. If you are here today and you know you're entrapped by something, you've given your heart to something else besides God along the way, and you feel enslaved, you can come to Jesus today and say, Lord, I know you want my freedom. You died for my freedom. You can know it with the fact that he wants you to be free. You can ask him for that. I look out on this room and I see many people like myself who have found freedom, but aren't we ever aware of the temptations and the possibility of the temptations? And I am daily, weekly confronted with opportunity to give myself again to idols in my life. For those of us who are in that boat, I have two ways that you and I can employ um, to help us fight those urges. The first is the practice of thanksgiving. You know, it is a fine line between finding happiness in your work and thanking the God who gave you the work, right? It's a small nuance between loving your Legos and giving thanks to God for the mind and the creativity and the hands and the resources to play with those Legos. It's a slight shift in attention between loving to play sports or to do them online and giving thanks to to the one who gives you a body, an opportunity to do those things. Maybe a simple illustration is sitting on my chair the other day with Samara. She has this little lamb thing. And uh, we're talking about um, the passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, um, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Very much a deal with idolatry. She says, this lamb is my treasure. I said, oh, that's precious. I said, what if, what if we say Jesus is your treasure and he gives you this gift, this lamb is a gift? Thank you, Jesus. See the shift? You can still love the object dearly, but just give praise to the gift giver. We don't have to give up everything that brings us joy in life. In fact, God wants you to have fun and wants you to be fulfilled. It's just a simple act of turning to give him thanks that keeps us from turning something good into something perversely idolatrous, right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is simple. It is you can regularly pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a great cure to any idolatry because the Lord's Prayer will reaffirm in the very first line who the Father is. It has us ask for the glorification of His name. Hallow your name, Lord. Make it known across the earth who you really are. It puts things in perspective. You can't be selfish when you pray the Lord's Prayer because the next two lines are, may your kingdom come, not mine. May your will be done, not mine, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, provider, give us this day our daily bread. That's all the necessities of life. Food, of course, shelter, love, safety, health. Asking God to be the provider of those things, not your 401k or your job or how hard you work or the person in your life who gives you things. None of those things. Him, Lord, forgive us our debts. No one else can really do that as we also forgive our debtors. Leads us into reconciliation, doesn't it? And Lord, 
deliver us from the evil one who is always tempting. And let's face it, Lord, I am weak when I am tempted. I need, when I'm tempted, deliver me, deliver us from the evil one. I need your help. And then we close with, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a cure for idolatry. Thanks be to God for his jealous zeal that sends Jesus to rescue us. He is our cure. Would you pray with me? In fact, let's uh, take a moment to, to lay before Jesus either the things that we are entrapped by or the things that we are constantly fighting temptation-wise um, that could become traps for us. And let's, let's confess those and ask the Lord for help. Just silently where you're sitting. Lord, hear these silent confessions before you. Uh, We thank you that you know our hearts better than we do anyway. But as we have spoken these things to you in the silence about uh, ways we've been trusting in worldly solutions, uh, even sinful solutions, or are tempted to do so, we pray, Lord, for, for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, for for deliverance, and we pray for help to resist those temptations. Lord, if we're honest to our core, we look to these things because we have a hard time trusting. It hurts to say that when we're speaking to one who died on a cross for us. And it kind of hurts to say that speaking to one who has bailed us out so many times on a personal level. Lord, we confess that our minds are fickle, our emotions flip-flop so quickly it scares us. We pray, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God that dwells in us, that you would help us to grow in our trust in the Lord to believe deeper and deeper each day that Jesus has our best in mind, that we can trust him, and that that leads to life. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Thank you for your all-sufficiency. Thank you that you fulfill this law in yourself. Amen.